So the title of today's sermon is More Than Meets the Eye, Uncovering a Hidden Message. We are going to be primarily in Genesis chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. But before we begin to read out of Genesis chapter 5, I want to read an excerpt for you from Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood of Noah, of Noah's day. He didn't cause the flood. And I behold, I establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. This is God's response to Noah. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, of every beast of the earth, with you from all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Everybody say boundaries. boundaries. Hey, God is establishing a covenant of boundaries with people. He's telling them, this is what I promise you in this covenant. This is where my, I'm drawing the line in the sand for me. This part of the covenant, I'm giving myself a boundary. So you guys realize we serve an almighty, all-powerful God. He's, he's able. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at the same time. He can do all things. But there are some things that he cannot do because he established a rule against himself and said, I will not do this. Right? Does that make sense? It's not that he can't. It's that he made a promise and he won't. So therefore, he won't. This is what he's doing. And God said, this is the token of the covenant that I made between you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud. Everybody say rainbow. rainbow. And it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the earth, as he said a minute ago, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all the flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I remember an everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh is upon the earth. So he set boundaries between himself and every living creature in all the earth, something that he would not do. And, of course, the boundary that he set for them, although it's not described in detail in chapter 9, uh, was what happened in chapter 6. And that is a whole other story, uh, but it was a type of integration and the all men, the Bible says, God looked upon the earth and men had become increasingly evil. And so he was going to wipe everybody out. But Noah was found perfect in his generations. Um, that, 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 would, that would be a whole other sermon in itself to explain that uh, 110%. Uh, but know that there are boundaries that occurred then and God is putting a boundary on himself in uh, chapter number 9. I want you to remember that as we go forward. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter number 5. Genesis 5. We're going to be in verse 1, but before we start, I want to give you a rundown of a couple of numbers in the Bible. Everybody ready? Learn about some biblical numbers. We're going to run through a lot of information. We're going to try to get through it quickly uh, because it's not the point of the sermon, but it adds to the sermon. So what numbers represent in the Bible are a very, 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 very big deal. So pay attention with me real quickly. I want to run through this real quick and I want to make a point. So what does the number four represent in the Bible? What does God mean for the number four to represent? If you've ever heard it before, maybe you have, maybe you have not. Uh, the number four is the number of physical completion. And I'll explain to you how we come to that conclusion in a second. The number five, while it is traditionally held in popular uh, theory that the number five is the number of grace, there's actually very, very little uh, evidence as to why it should be held as a number of grace. That grace can be part of it for sure. 
But what we find is that five is also a number of completion. It's a number uh, that represents spiritual completion. So here's how we get to, and then, of course, the number seven uh, is perfect completion. Uh, here's how we get to those conclusions. Uh, who created the universe? God, right? So who created the earth? God. Okay. So if God created the universe and God created the earth, everything that we find on the earth and everything that we find in the universe is due to his creative hand, right? So in other words, God's not surprised when we would discover something like gravity. He knew it was there the whole time. He made it that way on purpose, right? We didn't have to have gravity. Whenever he created the universe, he used gravity as part of how he wanted to create it so that we don't float around and bump into each other. But he could have created us with those moon boots that they have in some of those movies that hold us to the ground because there is no gravity or whatever. There's sci-fi ways or things you can think of. But when God created the universe, he thought gravity would be a great idea. And I assume that he's right. I've never lived without it. It seems pretty cool to me. So gravity, he wasn't uh, surprised by that. Uh, when Einstein did his work and, the, and, and Faraday and some other scientists before him did their work on the electromagnetic field, God wasn't surprised. When we finally got down to the nitty-gritty and discovered the atom and discovered protons and neutrons and nucleus uh, orbited by electrons, God wasn't surprised. He set that there from the beginning, right? So if God did all that, let's take a look at what God did and how he did it and see if there's any significance to it, which of course there is. When it comes to God, we read Proverbs 25 and 2, and he said, I want you to remember this as we go forward. He said, it is the glory of God. And this is Solomon, so he would know. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. That is a big statement, whether you've ever really thought about it before or not. There is nothing more amazing, more powerful, or more reverent on the face of this earth or in this universe than God's glory. So for his glory to be defined, at least in part, by what he conceals, that is a huge deal. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the joy of kings to seek it out. Everybody say, I'm a king. He's called us a kingdom of priests. We are kings and we are priests with him. The Bible reiterates that, the book of Revelation and other, and other places. We are kings and we are priests. So it is our glory, I'm sorry, his glory to conceal. It is our joy to seek things out that are hidden. And I think we're going to encounter some of that joy this morning. So when we go out, it's not just in his word, in his word for sure, but also in the things that he created. He's given us the understanding to uncover some of those things. For instance, Einstein while everybody wants to claim him, Germany wants to claim him, Israel wants to claim him, America wants to claim him because he did work in all countries. He's literally a Jewish guy. Einstein is a Jewish name. He has a Jewish heritage, and he upheld the standards of the Old Testament at least for a while. In his journals, he wrote that it was actually a uh, revealing something to him, that God revealed something to him in the book of Genesis in the Hebraic form that started to lead him down the path of his theory of relativity. What God revealed is that in the beginning, God created light. We all, we all see that. So light existed, but it wasn't until day four that he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, which is how we recognize light to exist in the universe. So how did light exist before the sun, the moon, and the stars? Well, literally, light is one word in English, and light is the same word again in English. But in Hebrew, it says, in the beginning, God said, let there be or. And that's the Hebrew word for light. O-W-R is kind of how you would pronounce it in English. And then in day four, he said... I'm going to create the sun, the moon, and the stars for meor, which is a different Hebrew word, same English word, light. When Einstein realized that, he began to study differences in light. That's something that he wrote. That's something that he claimed. And, of course, it led him down a, a scientific trail of a revelation of the theory of relativity, which I believe God gave him the wisdom to uncover. 
That being said, when we take work of people like Einstein and Newton and we go further and relate it to the Bible because God created all things, we find some interesting things. For instance, the number four. It's pretty crazy. When you look at the, the universe and the way God created everything, look at the earth. For instance, the earth has four primary directions, north, east, south, and west. It didn't have to be that way. Four intermediate directions, southeast, southwest, northeast, northwest. Four hemispheres, four seasons, four divisions of three on a clock, four divisions uh, of three inside of the months, uh, of which there are four seasons. You get outside uh, the earth, and there's even a lot, more, a lot more instances upon the earth, but you get outside the earth, and you find that everything works in fours as well. We talked about atoms. Well, inside of atoms, there are protons and neutrons. The thing that hold protons and neutrons together inside of that nucleus are two forces. One's called the strong nuclear force, and one's called the weak nuclear force. The other two forces that work in the universe are called gravity and the electromagnetic force. So there are exactly four forces that hold everything together in the entire universe. Now, you take those atoms and subatomic particles like protons, neutrons, electrons, uh, muons, and bosons, and all the different things that exist. When it comes down to it, there are exactly 16 subatomic particles that make up all of the matter in the universe. Those 16 particles are grouped into families of four because of their charge and their weight and some other things. So there are four groups of four subatomic particles that make up the, the matter at the base of all matter in the entire universe. Four, 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 four. In the King James Version of the Bible, which is the most popular version of God's Word on the planet, the word God appears 4,444 times. Exactly the same number of all the subatomic particles that exist to make up matter in the universe. This is not coincidence. When it comes to uh, the Word of God, when, when Jesus came to reveal uh, the spiritual nature of the Old Testament, he did it in four physical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at least when the Word of God was put together. Whenever God reveals uh, and brings physical completion through the book of Revelation, he uses four horsemen to get it done that are revealed by four angels that circle the throne of God in the heavens, the four seraphim. It goes on and on and on and on. I'm leaving some things out. Also, when it comes to matter, there are four forms of matter. Uh, you have liquid, solid, gas, and plasma, four states of matter. So everything comes down to fours. When God created the universe, you find this pattern of fours that goes on and on and on and on and even exists inside of God's Word. Pretty cool stuff. So four being spiritual completion. Five being physical completion. Why is five physical completion? I'm sorry, four physical completion, five spiritual completion. Um, five, the main reason that we have for five being spiritual uh, completion is because when we get into the New Testament, it tells us that for all of the ministry that the Holy Ghost, the Spirit has to flow through and empower the church, there are exactly five different types of ministry or the fivefold ministry. Uh, preachers, teachers, evangelists, pastors, and apostles. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Preachers, teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. So you have the fivefold ministry. Those, those five ministries that hold the church together, so to speak, relate to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which had five bars that held together all of the, the, uh, the pillars of the tabernacle, which, uh, by the way, is me and you, because the tabernacle is a temple, and the Word of God says, no, you're not, that you're the temple of God, so on and so forth. And us being the temple, us being the tabernacle, it's no coincidence that we have uh, five fingers on each hand, five toes on each foot, five senses through which the Spirit can flow, so you have spiritual completion in that sense. When God first revealed his word to Moses, which is his spiritual work, he revealed it in exactly five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which we call the Torah. In Greek to English circles called the Pentateuch because Penta being five. So you have spiritual completion through the number five. You have physical completion through the number four. By the way, 
Numbers are not something we created. Numbers are something we discovered, right? When God created the universe, however he created it, when, when he placed Adam inside of the Garden of Eden and Adam saw a horse, he didn't need numbers. But when he saw the second horse, all of a sudden he needed numbers because now we have to learn how to count. Well, there's a horse. There's another horse. There's another horse. How do I describe that? One, two, three. So we assigned the symbols and we assigned the words one, two, three or uno, dos, tres or whatever. Of course, all the different languages on the earth. But the value already existed. Did you just laugh at my Spanish? You laughed at my Spanish because you're Spanish and I'm not. That's funny. That's racist, but it's funny. Okay, so totally kidding. So anyway, um, back to the word of God. The numbers existed. The values existed. We needed symbols to dedicate to those numbers and values. But when we count, when we add, when we subtract, when we multiply, when we divide, that's all based upon the universe that God created. All of the great dynasties before the advent of the Internet and, and even uh, papyrus and all that stuff, a lot of them came to the same conclusion when you study the history of math that our universe was, on, was built on a, uh, on a base 10 mathematical structure. And then, of course, as knowledge increased and all of the, the different areas of the earth were able to communicate, we all figured out that we came to the same conclusion. And uh, that's really came to that conclusion because you have 10 fingers and 10 toes, and that's how it started. But it worked. And everything does seem to work that way. So when we take the number of spiritual completion, four, we take the number of physical completion, five, and we add those numbers together, we get the number nine, which, if we're correct in our thinking, should have some type of significance when it comes to completion. And guess what? How many single digits are there in our numerical value system? There are nine, right? After nine, the digits end. Then they start to repeat. One and zero have already been used. Now, if you add zero as a digit with value, it doesn't have any value. It's a placeholder. But if you did add zero, you'd have ten digits. But they would still end after the digit nine. And there'd be no more. Interesting that nine is the magic number. What does that mean? Anything, anytime you multiply nine by any other number, the sum of those digits is always nine, which is, doesn't happen with any other number. 9 times 2 is 18, 8 plus 1 is 9, times 3 is 27, 7 plus 2 is 9, times 4 is 36, 6 plus 3 is 9, times 5 is 45, 4 plus 5 is 9, and then they reverse. Instead of 45, it goes to 54 with 6, and instead of 36, it goes to 63, and instead of 27, it goes to 72, all the way up until you get 9 times 10, which is 90, 9 plus 0 equals 9. When you get into the double digits, this is why I needed a drink of water, when you get into the double digits, 9 times 11 is 99, 9 plus 9 is 18, 8 plus 1 is 9, it goes on ad infinitum forever with the number nine so it shows a completion that it always falls back into itself and there are no more single digits available in the universe past the number nine which is not a coincidence because we've seen completion with four and with five are we all still here yeah. good okay i think we're done with the numbers for now so that why did i want to share all that with you because we are in genesis chapter five and there seems to be no significance to Genesis chapter 5. But we know the number 5 as being completion, that we maybe should see some kind of complete thought from God in Genesis chapter 5. So let's start in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Everybody say Adam. Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Is it a coincidence that Adam was the first guy, and then when we started discovering particles, we named the base particle Adam? I mean, different spelling, but I don't know. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think things like that happen, and it's funny. I mean, Adam, A-T-O-M, they named it that because it's a Greek word for uncuttable. 
which Einstein proved is not the case, but it's just funny that uh, that happened. Anyway, I'm rambling now. Verse 2, male and female created them and blessed them and called their name Adam the day when they were created. Verse 3, Adam lived a hundred and some odd years, and he called his name Seth. It's talking about his third son there. In the days of Adam, he had begotten Seth 800 years, verse 5, and all the days of Adam, verse 6, and Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. And uh, verse number 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And it goes all the way down. Verse number 12, Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalil. It goes on and on and on. We'll go all the way till the end because it just talks about how long people lived and who they gave birth to. So let's go to verse number 30. Lamech lived after he begat Noah 595 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Everybody say Noah. So it starts with Adam at the top as the first mention of a name and ends with the last mention of uh, one of the first generations of, uh, of Noah. So when you go through Genesis chapter 5 and you read all that, it seems to be like this is part of the sacrifice that you make to be a Christian. Chapters like Genesis chapter 5. As I know what you do when you come up to Genesis chapter 5, because you do the same thing I do. You're about five verses in, and you start having a battle within your own mind. Should I just skip this? Should I just skip this? God, is it a sin if I skip this? I should read this. I need to read the whole Bible. I really should read it. And you keep reading a couple more verses, you're like, I need to skip it. I'm getting nothing out of this. And you're like, no, I need to read it. It's God's Word. And by the time you're like at verse 30, you regret that you read that much. You have no idea what you read, and you start getting real with yourself. And like, if I would have just skipped it, it wouldn't have been any different because I didn't get anything out of that. So-and-so begat so-and-so, I probably won't even remember. So if you're studying the Word of God, of course there's significance to studying and remembering names and things of that nature. But if you're just reading it, man, chapters like chapter number 5 are tedious. But they're in there for a reason. We know that because the Word of God says that all Scripture is inspired and breathed by the Holy Spirit. And we know that God doesn't mince words or do things without reason. So when we search for a reason for Genesis chapter 5, it starts to get just a little crazy. I want to revisit our, our um, foundational scriptures real quick. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. Everybody say conceal. But the honor of kings is to search it out. There's something concealed in Genesis chapter 5. And what we're going to do this morning is search it out. Genesis chapter 5, I'm sorry, Matthew 5, 18 says, For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The law is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, that we already talked about, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. A jot and a tittle in Hebrew is equivalent to dotting the I or crossing the T in English. It's a, it's a symbol. It's not even a whole letter. But Jesus says not even that is going to pass away from the law until everything be fulfilled. So he came to fulfill it, not to do away with it. So it's good for us to study it. So that's what we're going to do. There are so many hidden messages in the Bible, so many hidden meanings through people's names. The first one that I want to reveal to you, and then we'll go through all, is, uh, is real significant. It's a name called Methuselah. How many of you have heard of Methuselah? Methuselah. He is the oldest man recorded in the Bible, yet he died before his father. How is that possible? Little, little Bible riddle. Nobody wants to take a shot at it. I know some of you know, because his dad was Enoch, and I'm sorry, I'm looking for something, 
And Enoch, the Bible says in the book of Jude, was translated uh, because he walked with God. He had this testimony that he pleased God. And then he was translated off the face of the earth. In other words, he never died. God literally raptured him or took him up. We go to Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. And it says, Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. Now, there's some of this that I don't want to go through. I want to, I want to leave it up to you. Actually, let me, let me restate that. I might, I might go through it. No, I'm not going to go through it. Um, here, it's something you can study out on your own and find some joy in it. Uh, Methuselah's name. Now I need to take you on a little journey down translating the Hebrew language. So bear with me real quick. You can forget all the number stuff. We're done with that. That was all just to focus in on the number five, really, in Genesis chapter five. Uh, when it comes to uh, translating things in Hebrew, it's a very difficult, again, can be a tedious task. When you're translating regular words, um, it's not such a big deal. But when you're translating proper names and proper nouns, it can be a little bit more difficult. A lot of you that have been around Edgewater for a little while, you've learned how to use a concordance. You've learned about your blue letter Bible. You've learned how to get in and look up the topical uh, Hebraic definitions for Hebrew words out of the Old Testament. And that is a very good tool. But when it comes to people's names... It's, it's also a lackluster tool. It's not that it's always wrong uh, or, or even necessarily ever wrong, but it's very surface level. Uh, there's another tool called the Hebrew lexicon, which can take you a little bit further. There's, there's multiple different lexicons, but sometimes they come up short as well when you're studying out a proper name because in the Hebrew, uh, proper names are always built in with roots, uh, always a three-letter root, and you have to understand those letters and understand the etymology of that word, which means the origin of it, in order to understand what the word actually means. Now, this is something that's been studied and debated uh, for literally centuries past. I say all that to say this. You look at the word Methuselah. If you go to your concordance or you get online, East Sword of Blue Letter Bible, whatever, you look up the word Methuselah, it's going to tell you that it means something like man of the dart or man of the arrow. And it sort of does, uh, but Methuselah breaks down into two separate roots. One is Muth and the other is Shalak. And in Hebrew, it's literally the, it, the, the way you would say his name is uh, Methu, uh, Methuselah, instead of Methuselah. There's been a debate since at least the 1600s about the root of the, of the beginning of Methuselah's name. Some people translate it as Meth, M-E-T-H, or Math, M-A-T-H, but that same root is translated multiple times inside of Genesis chapter 5, separate from his name, as the Hebrew uh, word that's spelled M-U-T-H or Muth. That's important because they have different meanings. The word muth, which is the original understanding of his name, means death or day of his death. <coughs> Shalek is also translated multiple times in the Old Testament by itself, and it always means coming forth or bringing forth or shall come forth. So when you take the roots of Methuselah's name and put them together, his name means his death shall bring forth. Now, Enoch, we understand to be a prophet, one of the original prophets. Enoch coming through the progeny, obviously, of Adam and Eve, passed down through uh, Abel and Seth and all of those guys uh, of the same genealogy. It may be a shocker to you, uh, but you can look up the scripture or Google it if you like, but Jesus Christ himself actually calls Abel a prophet. We studied that a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. And so that prophetic line comes down pretty early into Enoch. And Enoch, it tells us in the book of Jude and the book of Hebrews, lines him out as a prophet as well. So when he named his son Methuselah, he named him prophetically. 
his death shall bring forth. Why is that significant? Because if you study the Bible math, so-and-so lived 187 years and begat so-and-so who lived 182 years, and then Methuselah, and he lived this long, and then he died, and then all of a sudden, the day that he dies, and by day I mean the year, we don't know down to the day of the week, but the year that he died was the year that Noah's flood happened. So he had a prophetic name, his death shall bring forth. But nobody knew exactly what it should bring forth, but they knew it was going to bring forth something. The year that he died was the year that the flood happened. Now, that's pretty crazy. There are even scholars that go so far as to say his name means in the day of his death shall bring forth many waters. The reason they add the waters on there is because of the first letter of Methuselah's name, which is uh, the M letter in Hebrew, Mem, is how you say it, and it means water or waves. So that's pretty significant. Remember when we read earlier out of Genesis chapter 9, God giving them the rainbow and setting boundaries between himself and them of what he would and would not do? All right, well, here's something that gets even crazier. And I promise after we get through this, it's a lot of information, but we're going to run through the rest of it pretty quickly. So let me give you, let me just go in depth. Uno mas. Don't do it. All right. I can see through your beard over there. All right. Um, in the Hebrew language, there are 22 letters. Exactly 22 letters and five final forms. The final forms don't matter for this conversation. 22 original letters in the Hebrew language. What's significant about the Hebrew language above English is that every single letter has a word picture attached to it. It has a symbol. It also has a numerical value. It also has a literal meaning. And it is also spelled with other letters from the Hebrew alphabet, all of which carry those same individual meanings. So it gets crazy, it gets deep, it gets unending. The only languages on earth that even come close are Greek. And uh, when you look at the Roman numeral valuing system, it's sort of similar. But really, uh, Hebrew stands alone. It's why we need to take some of our English words from the Bible and translate them back into Hebrew, because there's no such thing as an English word that can translate a Hebrew word. The meaning is too in-depth. It always takes a sentence or a paragraph to really interpret one Hebrew word. So the roots, the roots have one meaning because of the combined symbol, uh, symbols and literal meanings, but the letters themselves even have separate meanings. So I want to run through, and this is non-debatable. This everybody agrees on, on, on what the letters mean for the most part. Even if they have different meanings, they mean the same thing, even if they use different words. But it's pretty well known the meanings of each Hebrew letter. It goes all the way back and dates back to Paleo-Hebrew, and it's always the same. So the first letter of Methuselah is the Hebrew letter Mem. And as I already told you, it means waves or waters. I want you to pay attention. This gets crazy. The second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, I'm sorry, the second letter of Methuselah's name is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is called uh, the Tav. It has the th sound. The Tav, its picture is literally a cross, and it means covenant or sign. Two cross sticks is how they made it back in the day. Waves or water and sign of covenant. Mem and Tav. There is a, when two, root, when two roots come together in the Hebrew, there's a letter that they use to hook those roots together called a Vav because the word symbol for the Vav is literally a hook, and it means to hook or latch. So the Vav comes, falls in, in Methuselah's name right after the Tav. So you have Mem, Tav, Vav. The Vav means to hook or connect. 
And then the last part of his name, the shellac starts with a sheen, which looks like this. It's the Dr. Spock letter. Uh, Dr. Spock, by the way, was the guy was Jewish, and that's how he came up with that. It's the, it's the Hebrew letter sheen. It's the first letter in Shaddai, and it means, always means destruction. After the, after the sheen comes the lamed. Lamed looks like a staff, and it literally means teaching, like it would use a staff to teach somebody, to teach a sheep where to go, not to go, whatever. So it means teaching. And the last letter is the chet, and it carries the ch sound, Methushalek. And the chet looks like a fence, and its meaning is barrier. All right? So let me put all this together for you. You take all those letters and their meanings, and guess what Methuselah's name says letter by letter, drawn out as a sentence. It says, waves of water for a sign of covenant connecting destruction for the teaching of barriers. That's pretty crazy. Because that's exactly what God did in the year that Methuselah died. He sent waves of of water in a sign of a covenant to teach by destruction barriers. And that's what his name always meant from day one when they picked the letters out. Now you can get online and Google meaning of Hebrew letters, Hebrew alphabet, whatever. You're going to find that to be true on almost every single chart. There are, it is the internet, so there are weirdos that made up their own thing. But when you go to an actual Hebrew alphabet from an actual source, they all believe the same thing. It's always been that way. Now, is that crazy or is that crazy? So I didn't really give you an option. It's crazy. Uh, so uh, if Methuselah's name means that much, then we would go ahead and want to assume, man, there might be some other things. Just by the way, when talking about five as a number of physical completion, when we get the uh, prophecy in Isaiah of Jesus Christ, it says his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Is there a reason why it stops at five? Could be. So let's go ahead and, and jump on the names here real quick. Adam. Adam is an easy one. When God created man, he named him Adam, and therefore Adam's name means man. There's a root uh, word. There's two root words to Adam, and one of them means red, so sometimes you'll find that as the definition But Adam's name means man. After Adam, the next name in Genesis chapter 5 is Seth. Seth means appointed. That's also a pretty easy one to find. Most most research will will produce the same name. Eve said, for God has appointed me another son instead of Abel. Uh, Enosh, who Seth gave birth to and is the next generation. Enosh means mortal, frail, or miserable. It's from the root Enosh which means incurable, wound, grief, woe, sickness, wickedness. So you see the same congruent meaning through all of these names. Basically means mortal uh, or able to die or sickly. Of course, it was in the days of Enosh that man began to be able uh, to defile the name of the living God. You can find that also in the book of Jude. The next name is one of those difficult ones that takes a lot of study because it's Canaan. But Canaan is not really a Hebrew word. Uh, Canaan is an Aramaic word, which was a popular language that Christ probably spoke, but we're way back in the book of Genesis where everything's written in certain types of Hebrew. So Canaan actually to be studied out is the word Kenan with a K. And unfortunately, most sources give Kenan's word definition as the definition of Canaan as if they're the same word, but they're not. But when you go back to the Hebrew and you look up the word Kenan, Kenan means sorrow, dirge, or elegy. We're going to stick with sorrow. The next one after that is Mahalil. Mahalil means blessed or praised. And it ends with the, the, letter, uh, the letters E-L. So it's Mahal-El or Mahalil. 
Anytime you see E-L at the end of a Hebrew name, it means God because God gave his name in the book of Hebrew, um, sorry, the book of Genesis, at least a title for his name as Elohim. It's why all the angels have it attached to the end of their name. Mike L, Gabriel L, Yuri L, uh, even Satan slash Lucifer slash the devil. None of those are actually his name. Some of those are not even good titles or renditions. He had angelic name before he fell, which was Samael or, uh, or, or Belial, either one. Uh, but all of the angels have the E-L attached to the end of their name. Can I share a little side note with you for fun? Okay. There's two Jewish guys that developed the story of Superman, which is literally, that's why the, the, the people from the planet Krypton all have, or at least in Superman's family, they have the E-L at the end. Kal-El, Jurel, so on and so forth, because that's their little tag for their God. But anyway, um, after Mahalil comes Jared. Jared, from the verb yar, yarad, uh, there are no J's in Hebrew, means shall come down. Jared was the one that gave birth to Enoch. Enoch's name means teaching or commencement. We're going to stick with teaching. Uh, Enoch, it, when you count down this list, he's actually the seventh from Adam, which is significant in the fact that he got translated and or raptured when we're talking about Old Testament uh, symbols of the rapture because there's such a debate in the church. Well, we know that it comes on the seventh day or the end of God's plan or the 7,000th year. So uh, for Enoch to be the seventh one and he was the one that was raptured, I think is kind of significant. If you don't understand anything I just said, about the seventh day or 7,000th year or whatever. We can talk about it later. That's for, that's for those of us, that I guess, that have been taught that. Uh, sorry about that. Let's see. Enoch was the father of Methuselah, which we already mentioned. The day or his death shall bring is the definition of Methuselah. And he gave, let's see here, uh, Lamech. Uh, Lamech was Methuselah's son. Uh, Lamech literally means to lament or lamentation and uh, suggest uh, despair. So for Lamech to be lamenting or have a lamentation is a despairing thing. So despairing is one of the, the names or one of the meanings of the root words from Lamech. And then Noah, which is actually given in chapter 5 because it says uh, he shall bring us rest. Uh, Noah is derived from Nakam, which means to bring relief or comfort, as Lamech explains in chapter uh, 5, verse number 29. So those are all of the meanings of the Hebrew names, 10 names, that are given in Genesis chapter 5. Now, I think it's less than ironic that there are 10 names given. 10 is also a number of, it's a number of man's completion or judgment. We get that from the 10 commandments. We get that from the 10 virgins. We get that from some other things in the Bible. But also remember, we only have nine single digits in our numerical system uh, are up to number nine, but there are actually 10 if you count the zero. So 10 is also related to nine. All of that to suggest completion in God in Genesis chapter five, which is a number of physical completion, gives us the number of judgment and uh, 10 names. And those 10 names all have a meaning. Ted, if you would put the slide up for us so we can see those meanings next to each other. So in chapter five of the book of Hebrews, when we translate it from Hebrew, the book of Genesis, we translate from Hebrew to English says, man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. That is the gospel. That is the fullness of the gospel in a sentence or two. And that sentence is written in Genesis chapter 5, which is a number of completion, physical completion, through ten names, which is the, which is the number of judgment 
according to the Ten Commandments and Ten Virgins. So it's like God saying, pay attention. In chapter number five, I'm going to give you my complete judgment. And this is it. Man is appointed mortality and sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down. And this is my judgment teaching that his death, whose death, the death of his son shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. That's crazy that that exists in Genesis chapter five. What do I have to do to get an amen out of you people? God is good. Amen? Amen. That is the absolute truth of God's word. It seems like it's a chapter with no significance. It seems like it's a chapter that needs to be skipped over. It seems like we can't learn anything from it. But I want to, I want to tell you, it's one thing to see that and see how cool that it is and see the meanings. But it's a whole other thing if you think about it like this. One guy born at a different time would have messed up the whole thing. They had to go in that order. The names had to be placed in that order. And those meanings have been around as long as the Hebrew language has been around. And those roots have been around as long as the Hebrew language has been around. We serve a mighty God. We serve a God who has had you in mind from the beginning of time. We serve a God who could see from day one that I'm going to create me a man. I'm going to name him Adam. I'm going to give him everything. I'm going to use part of him to create a woman, which is the best thing that I'm going to give him. And he's going to have everything. I'm going to give him one rule. And with this paradise that I created for him and this perfect woman that I created for him and the fact that I have fellowship with him, if he can just follow one rule, he will live forever. But God could already foresee that that was not going to uphold, that he was not going to be able to follow that rule, that he was going to fall short. I'm speaking to you right now. Have you had a problem with alcohol? Have you had a problem with drugs? Have you had a problem with pornography? Have you not been able to get your child under control? Do you have a violent streak? Have you been cheated on? Have you cheated on somebody else? God saw from the beginning, my friend, that you were going to eat from that tree. And he said, I am going to place my judgment in the fifth chapter, opening my word in the book of Genesis. And my judgment is this. I know you're mortal. I know you're going to give in to sorrow and doubt. I know that you're going to fall short, but I am a mighty God and I will bless you and I will come down myself. I will wrap myself in flesh. It will be my word. I will teach you. I will run with you. I will pray with you. I will heal you. Ultimately, I will die for you. I will redeem you and I will bring you rest or comfort. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. There's only one thing that travels through both the first four books of the New Testament. We're back to the number four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as an independent book called Acts that is unlike any other book in the Bible. So the first five books of the Bible, before we get to Romans and from Romans to Revelation, are all epistles or letters. So these five books are unique. There's only one message that travels through all five. Somebody say Genesis chapter five. What does it end with? Rest. Everybody say rest. So guess what the only message that's carried forth through all four gospels and the book of Acts is? John, the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but there's one who comes after me to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Matthew records it. 
He says, I baptize with water, but there's one whose shoelace I'm not worthy to untie. He comes to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Mark records it. I baptize with water. He's coming with the Holy Ghost. Luke records it. I baptize with water. He's coming with the Holy Ghost. John records it. And then Jesus self, uh, Jesus Christ himself in the book of Acts says, go and tarry in Jerusalem in the upper room until you be endued with power from on high. That's actually in Luke. But then he says, the promise of the Father is coming. I will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Five books. One message, five times, and the Bible says that the Holy Ghost is our comforter and will bring us rest. Five books, five chapters, ten names, one message. He knows that you're going to struggle. He knows that you're going to have mishaps. He knows that you're going to make mistakes. And he knows what that will bring upon your life. It will bring fear. It'll bring turmoil. It'll bring misgivings. It will mess up your mind. It will make you indifferent. And it will make you insecure. And you'll be a jumbled, heaping mess of human. And he says, you know what? Instead of destroying you, I'm going to give you rest. Rest from the fear. Rest from the turmoil. Rest from the wreckage. Rest from the mistakes. Rest from other people. If you just stick with me, he says, I've already completed it. I made up my mind a long time ago and I put it in the fifth chapter of Genesis. And then I spoke it through the first five books of the New Testament through my son. I'm going to give you my spirit and it will bring you comfort and it will bring you rest. That's a mighty and forgiving God. That's a God of foresight and unconditional love. A God of mercy and loving kindness. Some people like to bring up that we have a, a really nice guy in the form of Jesus Christ, but we serve an ultimately vengeful God from the Old Testament. Well, I want to take them back to Genesis chapter 5 and say, listen, because of what we did, God had to do a certain amount of things, but it was pretty early on that he decided his judgment was going to come down, die for us, and give us rest. That's a loving God. That's a mighty God. That's a God like no other.